Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here with Cody Weckerly and Adam Nesbold. Hey. Oh, <laughs> whoa. Jumping in a little early there. Yeah, uh, just no, I the, guess I'm feeling just the, a, super comfortable. We're chomping you know, at the I, I don't know. What is this, like the fifth or sixth podcast? We, I don't know. We've done seven? a lot, We've done a lot of them now. And then you're ditching us here. In yeah, then I'll be heading July. back down to Kansas. and. Yep. It'll back to my day. life, my cush life down there. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. We... We just did an episode on baptism, and and yeah, now it's time to talk about the second ordinance that Christ gave the church as a new covenant sign and symbol. The Eucharist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are some who would call it that. Right. I mean, and that's obviously a part of the discussion. Okay. We have—let's just give our rough definition of what us, we as Baptists— believe about the Lord's Supper. Again, we said that baptism is a sign, a symbol, a picture of our initiation into the covenant community. Obviously, it it's a physical representation of a circumcised heart, of spiritual life, of being regenerated by the Spirit, um, having died with Christ, being raised to new life with Him. And now, the Lord's Supper is the continuation in the symbol and the sign of the continuation in God's covenant community. So, obviously, there is this whole reality of church discipline, and we already had a little bit of a discussion on church discipline as it pertains to congreg- congre- congregationalism, man. And this idea of wielding the keys and who has authority to wield the keys, we made, we made an, an argument that it's the assembled church who has the authority to wield the keys corporately and that, and that the keys aren't possessed and wielded by an individual like a bishop or even necessarily a plurality of, of elders, but that the congregation has that authority. Now, again, that's tied to baptism. So the congregation has the authority to, to bring people into membership, but then it's also tied to church discipline. The congregation has authority to to loose, uh, loose members and kick them out of the assembly because they no longer are showing us that they're truly regenerated, that they're truly a Christian because they're living an unrepentant life, which is obviously the hallmark of a non-believer. So how this pertains to the Lord's Supper then is obviously, hey, if you're partaking in the Lord's Supper with the church, when the church gathers— when you're breaking bread, and that's kind of one of the ways that the Bible describes the Lord's Supper is the breaking of bread. If you're if you're partaking in that meal, you are communicating to the rest of the body gathered together that I'm one of you. I'm a part of this assembly. I'm a part of this covenant community. I'm partaking with you. I'm eating of the same loaf that you're eating from, drinking from the same cup that you're drinking from. I'm professing and confessing the same gospel that this is displaying. And so that's why when we no longer see somebody actually have, you know, display the fruits of, uh, of, of salvation and they're living in unrepentant sin, we kick them out of the church and we, in a sense, we bar them from the Lord's Supper because they no longer are showing us fruits of salvation they're living in unrepentance. Well, that means then you sh- you can't take of this supper because this is only for people who have repented and are living a life of repentance and are a part of this covenant community, and we don't know that you are anymore or have, have ever been. 
So you're already articulating a close communion position, Sam. Well, not really. <laughs> I yeah, I'm in the middle on that. We'll get to that. Just go. <laughs> he's, he's just simply articulating First Corinthians five. I am. Yes. Right, and then we'll talk about practically how that is not actually in view in a lot of church cases. Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint that not only do most churches not practice church discipline, oh, right. but if they There's do, problem number one. Uh, they certainly wouldn't prohibit someone from taking communion right. in exactly. any way or restrict yeah. it. Uh, right. Though, you know, there's a certain fencing yeah. of, the, of the Lord's Supper. Right, for sure. So we'll get into some of that fencing language and why we would— why we have this idea of fencing the table, as it's as it's said. Now, the Lord's Supper, obviously, there's there's four. If we kind of get into a little bit of a historical treatment of the different views of of the Lord's Supper in church history, there's there's four primary views, and obviously one of them domin- dominated for a while, especially in the medieval church and during the, even the Dark Ages and stuff, and that's the the view of transubstantiation. Uh, before you, it was even called transubstantiation, or it was even articulated with philosophical language, you know, stolen from Aristotle uh, by Aquinas. It still was a, a a pretty dominant view in the Catholic Church that this actually is the body and blood of Christ. That these elements somehow become and are Christ Himself, and you are actually feeding upon Christ and partaking in Him and eating of Him. Uh, and that is a way in which you are then, you know, made righteous. You are infused grace and righteousness, and and it, the Eucharist then is what it's called is is the center of of Catholic worship and the Catholic Mass and the Catholic Church. I mean, all the other sacraments they have seven. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. They're all centered around and are oriented to and connected to. The Eucharist. The Eucharist is is the top dog of them all. Everything revolves around the Eucharist. It should be pointed out, though, that while that was the dominant view beginning in the Middle Ages, it was not the first view of the Church. Correct. Right. It, it was it was a novel and new view mm-hmm. when it when it was introduced. Right. And that's the same as our baptism discussion, how we said that, yes, though a lot of or most of church history did believe that paedobaptism, especially of the Catholic version, a more regenerate type, was, you know, look, that's the most dominant view. It wasn't the first view. And so we could say the same with the Lord's Supper. Now, obviously, when the Protestant Reformation took place, this was, this was a, a big point of contention and a major element that needed to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this, the sacramental theology of of the Catholic Church was just kind of abhorrent to the Reformers, and they then reclaimed that, no, there's there's two sacraments or two ordinances. It's it's just baptism in the Lord's Seven. There's not seven. And we need to do a major rehaul on what these actually mean and what the New Testament actually says. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue, though— that I would kind of put out or argue, and others have have done this too, is that, you know, for the most part, the Reformers, they didn't want to totally just be schismatics and totally separate themselves from the Catholic Church. They wanted to reform it. Mm -hmm. They wanted to see it—they wanted to stay a part of it, 
and they wanted to see changes made within it. But obviously they were going against papal authority and it was just it was an immediate attack on the Pope and it just wasn't going to work that they could do this from the inside and stay a part of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So obviously they did have to separate themselves. They didn't initially want to do that, uh, especially Luther. So, but again, this idea of transubstantiation was one of those major things that need to be overhauled big time. But again, you have to realize the context. These guys, Luther and those and those guys, were coming out of Catholic theology, the Catholic Church. They were trained in it. They were Catholics themselves. Um, and they still had flavors of that sacramental theology left over. They didn't totally rid themselves of it, this Catholic view, for an entirely biblical view of, let's just say, the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. So we kind of see these progressions a little bit in, in the first, I don't know, 100 years of the Reformation. With Luther, you had this view called consubstantiation, that that Christ is is under or with the elements. And in or through. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, and you're going, like, it's, again, it's hard to even conceptualize, like, what do you mean by that? He's like, he's there with them, he's under it, they're like, what do you, what do you mean? And so you're still, you're still partaking and eating of Christ. He's just not the elements themselves. They haven't become him, but he's still there with them. So it's, 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 it's still very Catholic-y, Luther's view. Now, kind of just back to the Catholic view, transubstantiation. Uh, this again, Aquinas was the one that actually created or articulated, uh, a defense of how this is possible using Aristotelian metaphysics and Aristotelian philosophy. And because you have this idea of substance and accidents. So substances are, 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 are actual things that have natures. Human beings are substances and our nature is, is that we are, you know, human beings or image bearers of God. That's our, that's our substance. That's our nature. That's our essence. But then we have accidents and our accidents are like the color of our hair, that we have hair. But, you know, it, it, accidents adhere to the substance. They aren't the substance. And accidents don't exist apart from the substance. Now, Aquinas tried to use that idea of substance and accident, and he would say that, okay, these elements, bread and wine, they're transubstantiated to a new substance, which is Christ himself. Transformed. Transformed. But the the accidents that adhere to the substance, the accidents of the bread and the wine remain. And so then you have a different substance, Christ's body and blood, but the accidents, like your brown hair, Cody, they, like the look, the taste, the feel, the smell of the bread and wine remain. Those are the accidents of the substance of bread and wine. They, they, they stay, though the substance is transformed. And you go, that's just bizarre. Like you're just you're you're totally stealing from Aristotelian philosophy in in order to defend your position that is clearly not biblical, and and it's not even it's not even purely Aristotelian either because Aristotle there is no idea that that a substance's accidents can somehow be separated from that substance and then and then somehow adhere to a different substance. You don't see that in Aristotle. So Aquinas just kind of pulled a little bit of a trick there that doesn't actually fit philosophically with what Aristotle was saying. 
and it's just odd. Like, wait a minute, like you can put Cody's brown hair on a, on a pumpkin and say, oh, look, you know, <laughs> like that just doesn't make any sense. So it's kind of like what Aquinas was doing, but nonetheless, the Catholics loved it. And look at this, we have a, this wonderful defense of how this is even possible. But again, I think Luther didn't go all the way, didn't go far enough, and he wanted to still kind of hold on to this this type of presence, Christ's presence with and under around the elements. And 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 again, they were grounding their position in John six, where Jesus is saying, You have to, you know, my body and my blood, it's true, true food, true drink. You have to I tr- truly say to you, you have to eat me, basically, paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. But eat my again, body, drink my blood. Yep. And and this was a hard saying to the disciples, and after that many left. The point is, though, is that we have no hint that he's actually talking about the Lord's Supper there. He's not actually talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted at the Last Supper, the 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 Passover feast in the upper room. Yeah, and that's what uh, I think makes this kind of an interesting discussion, is that in the life of Christ, there are a variety of moments that people who defend the Lord's Supper will look to and go, there you have the Lord's Supper going on. And right. you could think about the example you just gave yep. as Jesus is talking to um, to all those folks, uh, the feeding, right, of, of the 5,000. 5, and there is no doubt present within those narrative accounts a picture of something that is yep. present in the Lord's Supper, right? It, right? it is a unique time in which we think about our intimate communion with the Lord and our connection with one another. And certainly at that moment, Jesus is pointing ahead to things that he will do. At the same time, though, it is not the Lord's Supper, because as you mentioned, the Lord's Supper was instituted right. by Jesus right. at a specific point in time, right? right, during the Passover festival as he was with the apostles yeah. in the upper room. So, And it's, it is... It is the fulfillment of and was instituted as the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And the Passover meal, obviously, it was that was started, you know, when when the Hebrews were in slavery in Egypt and the tenth and final plague was that God was gonna send the, the destroyer and he was going to kill the firstborn from every family. And unless you took the Passover lamb and you sacrificed it and you put the blood of the lamb above your doorposts so that when the angel, the destroyer, came he, and he saw the blood covering your your doorframe, covering your home, he would pass over from your household and your firstborn would be spared. And so then they would have this Passover feast on that day to celebrate that the Lord had saved them. And, and so obviously Christ is that Passover lamb, and he shed his blood on the cross once and for all for us. And so him instituting this 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 meal uh and fulfilling the passover meal it's yeah it's it's looking at that and there's no idea there that that i mean even just think about the fact that jesus himself in the flesh he's a man uh he's not in two places at once and and he's breaking this loaf of bread and saying this is my body given for you do this in remember remembrance of me eat of this, and then the cup too, and you're going, could you even imagine, or or like if you were one of the, the, the disciples or that, somehow they would think, okay, Jesus is sitting right there, and he's breaking this loaf of bread, and am I to actually believe that this bread too is him, mm-hmm. literally him? 
and then I'm actually eating his flesh. What an odd idea. I can't imagine that. Now, that's not an argument that's really robust, but it is just something to entertain of like, what a weird idea. Well, and it connects with the story that we are well familiar of. I believe it was the debate between Luther and Calvin, was it not? Yeah. Where, um, you know, whether this actually happened or not, we're not entirely sure, but that they were in a room together and they were debating not, this. Not Luther and Calvin. Zwingli? Luther, Luther and, uh, it might have been Zwingli. Yeah, it must have been Zwingli. Because Luther and Calvin never met. So they're in the room together. And they're arguing back and writes forth, the right? They write on the table. Luther right? writes on the table, this is my body. Yep. Yeah. And then the response, of course, is do this in remembrance yeah. of me, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And back and forth. And uh, apparently this meeting had to do with whether or not they were going to be able to kind of unite together. Right. There was great things happening in Germany through Luther. There were great things going on in Switzerland through Zwingli. Yep. And so it was like, hey— Maybe we can unite forces here, right? Yeah. And they agreed on a whole bunch of things. Oh, man, but they couldn't get over that. They couldn't get over communion. Right. And, you know, it really was kind of the first domino to fall of the Reformation after you started to go uh, questioning the, the authority, right? Yep. Where does the church's authority lie? Right. Uh, are popes and councils uh, authoritative in their decrees and what they decide? Yep. Uh, well, I mean, that's where Luther came back to Sola Scriptura, yep. right? And we talk about how one of the products of the Reformation was salvation by faith alone in Jesus, right? But really, that was the material product of the bigger issue of authority, mm. you know? And it really was that, again, as you mentioned, I mean, it wasn't as though they, you know, these reformers were hoping to start a new denomination or a new branch of the church. Right. They wanted to reform what was there. Yep. But once you start to question, like, where does our authority come from? Oh, it comes from the Bible. Well, then, naturally, you start to question other things. Well, if we arrived at these positions through the decrees of councils and popes and, you know, what these people said, then maybe we need to go back and revisit these things. And in the light of Scripture, uh, how should we be practicing and believing the Lord's Supper? And, uh, and that was the first domino to fall. And then the next thing, of course, later on, would be baptism. But... At least in terms of the two ordinances, the Lord's Supper came first, baptism came second. Right. So. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out too that you know, both in John six, you know, and for the disciples, like like you mentioned, the reason why, uh, particularly though in John six, the reason why it was so difficult for the Jews to accept this concept, and why Jesus had to repeat it so much in John six of, you have to eat of my body. Yeah is because it is against Jewish law to commit cannibalism. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, and, the, the, I mean, the early church was accused of being cannibals. Right, right. And and so for, for a Jewish rabbi to then say, you must eat my flesh, it, the, the very concept would be, like, unimaginable. Right. Um, and so then when Jesus doubles down on that, uh, it, they, they couldn't understand what he was saying right. because they, they couldn't understand why he would be telling them that. And obviously, Jesus being God is not telling them to violate the Jewish law because Jesus came to fulfill the law. Right. So he must be speaking metaphorically. Yep, figuratively. Um, or figuratively would be a better way to say it. He must be speaking figuratively, 
but of what, like in what way is he speaking figuratively that they aren't understanding? That's that's the big question in John six, mm-hmm. and um, they obviously like the group that left him didn't understand it. But the the other key thing to to understand like is the the bigger picture in John six is that he had just done like Jesus had just done the feeding of the five thousand, right. and Jesus's whole point is you are coming after me because you want bread, you want actual food mm-hmm. like wheat bread. Yeah, and he's like. You need to consume, like, me. He's saying you need to consume, like, spiritual bread mm-hmm. is, is what Jesus is saying. and um, Which is, is equated to what he's saying is you must believe in me. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and Jesus, like, and, and the, the other thing that's going on there, like, if you read the whole context of what's happening, and, and Matthew also supports this, is that this crowd that's following him wants to make him a king. They're, fo- they're literally following him yeah. as Jesus is crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee because they, they want to take him and put him on the throne because they, they want to replace King Herod with Jesus because Jesus just fed 5,000 people with yeah. two loaves of bread and two fish. <laughs> yeah. Like, so they, they, they see what Jesus just did, and they're like, our poverty is over. Let's make him a king. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and because of that pressure, it seems to be the very reason that Jesus dismisses the disciples before he dismisses the crowds, yeah. and he sends them to the other side of the sea. Yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> Jesus is like, no, you guys, like, Jesus is telling them, you don't get it. I'm not going to continuously feed you. Stop following me because you're hungry. Yeah. Like, listen, it, listen to... Me, you need to be righteous, and you need to repent, and the crowd just doesn't get it. Right. Well, even look at, like, just, I'm in John 6 right now, starting in verse 28. Then they said to him, what, what, what must we do to, or what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this, this bread always. They still don't get it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yeah. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So that's that's before he even gets into the whole, you must eat of me. And, you know, he's just talking about, no, no, you don't understand. I'm the bread, and how you eat of me is by believing in me. Yeah. Yep. And you're not doing this. You actually think there's The manna from heaven came down. I came down. I came down. Mm-hmm. Believe in me. That's how you eat of me. Yep. And then he gets into this more figurative language because they just don't get it. Yep. And then they leave. So this whole idea that he's actually speaking literally further down in John 6 of you actually have to eat me, my actual flesh, is just not good hermeneutics at all. No, because it starts with that very point. Exactly. And it yep. ends with that point. At yeah. the very end of John 6, he rephrases it and says again, you have to believe in me. Mm-hmm. So... Again, it's just to get from this chapter, as the Catholics do, and even as as Luther did with his idea of consubstantiation, where he actually does, does believe you have to eat of Christ 
but it's not the elements. It's 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 his body, literal body, is with the elements. Not much better, honestly. Not right. much better. Right. So again, it's just b- bizarre to get that from. That. Mm-hmm. And then you could go on because John continues with these these figurative analogies and stuff. Well, Jesus is the door. Jesus is is the way. Jesus is the vine. And you go, well, is he literally the vine? Is he literally a doorway? No. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I'm getting fired up. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, you, you spent time articulating a couple of the positions. You talked yeah. about transubstantiation. You talked about consubstantiation. Now, so what are the other positions presence, here? Spiritual presence and memorial. So spiritual ve- presence is the, what's called the reform position. This is the position that was advocated by Kelvin. And he is wise enough to understand that, well, wait a minute now. There's no way that these that we are to literally eat Jesus and, and and literally drink his blood. Like that's absurd. You don't see that in the Bible. John six does not say that. But he did still believe, and you could even say that maybe this is still a flavor of a, of a sacramentalism that he was still holding on to a little bit. because uh, again he was ra- he was trained as a Catholic. Uh is this it's still holding on to the this presence though like Christ is uniquely and that's kind of the position of the spiritual presence he's uniquely present with the elements and within us partaking of the Lord's Supper and and again you know people go back and forth between spiritual presence and what would be called the memorial view and that's the position of Zwingli that that Christ isn't uniquely present with the elements any more than he is uniquely present with just the church gathering. But what this is, is it's, it is a visible representation, again, of the gospel, and it reminds us, because, again, we're dumb and we're knuckleheaded and we easily forget the gospel and easily forget what Christ did for us and easily forget that there's a future wedding feast that we're going to partake in and, and all of that, so we need to be reminded through visible signs and symbols and things. And it's just... A rem- it's a memorial. It's a remembering, and it's not necessarily uh, this unique, special presence of Christ. And that's the thing is like, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote, and this is um, this is in, in pertaining to the uh, oh wrong book. You want to talk? Picked up your believer's baptism book. Yeah, I we already the discussed book. that ordinance. Yeah, here we go. Yep. So this is, a, this is a quote from, who is this by? I'm gonna, just a second. This is an edited work, so I can't just look at the front cover. I, I want to be able to attribute this quote to the right man. Oh, man, so many pages. I'm really botching this. Sean D. Wright. So he says, in, in reference to the Reform view, he says, uh, the Bible does not speak of the supper as a means of grace, a sign, or a seal, nor does the Bible explicitly teach Christ's objective presence in the supper. These components of sacramental theology, the meaning of sacraments, means of grace, sign, seal, and the objective pres- presence of Christ are, it seems to me, largely imports from what the tradition assumes to be true about sacraments. Their understanding flows logically from their sacramental theology, but it does not flow necessarily from the Bible. This is important for us to note because it is largely on the basis of the Reformed tradition's view of the sacraments that they arrive at their view of the objective nature of the supper, but they do not derive this definition closely enough from Scripture. While the root problem with the Reformed tradition is its definition of sacraments, it it has three other shortcomings. One is theological, one pastoral, and one 
biblical. I'm not going to read all of those, but that's that's his view, the Wright's view that, okay, he's obviously believes in a memorial view, and, and he's pushing against the Reformed tradition with Calvin a little bit and saying, ah, it seems like there's still a hint of sacramental theology or sacramental ideology in, in their view of the Supper. And now, for the most part, like our Presbyterian friends would probably hold to a Reformed view of the Supper uh, and yet still hold on to you see this a lot. You see a combination of the two where you go, of course it's memorial, but it's all, I also, you'll hear people say, I also think there is some type of unique presence of Christ, their spiritual presence. So what do you think, Sam? I, I think I think right now where I sit, because I've been back and forth between the two, mm-hmm. I think right now, and I could change, maybe I'll change my mind, I, I'm more of just a, a pure memorial view guy. That's where I would sit now. Because I don't necessarily, because if, if we think and believe that, that the church experiences already when they gather a unique presence of Christ in their midst as as you know they are the household of God they they are the body of Christ um, each one of each member you know who's regenerate truly has the spirit of Christ dwelling within them and when they gather together you know as we said in our congregational podcast Matthew 18 like truly I am there with you Okay, so like if that's true of the church when they gather, well, that already is a is a spiritual presence of Christ. That already is the reality of the gathered church. And the Lord's Supper is just one of the elements that takes place when the church is gathered. So why why take the Lord's Supper and and elevate it above the preaching of the word and and the singing of hymns and all the other necessary elements that we have to do in worship? That we all we do it together. We don't disjoint them. It's all part of the same gathering. Why do we then like like push the Lord's Supper kind of in its unique position? Say, well, yeah, Christ is present here because we're gathered, but He's uniquely present when we're partaking of the elements. And I go, no, I don't. I don't necessarily think that. I think He's uniquely present the whole time we're gathering, no matter what we're doing when we're worshiping. Obviously, according to the regulative principle, as we said. He's uniquely present when we're gathered, and one of the things we do when we're gathered is partake the Lord's Supper. So if that's the way you want to say he's uniquely present, well, yeah, but that's because we're But that's church. for everything. That's for everything. That's be connected to the gathering. Exactly. So that's, where I, that's what I would say. That's, yeah. my, that's my position right now. Yeah, and I guess as you think about it, I mean, I'm guessing that one strong argument that is probably presented in, term, in favor of the spiritual presence view is the fact that what happens when the Church takes of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Yeah. Then the Lord brings judgment, right? right? And before you know it, people are dying within the Corinthian right. Church right. because of what they were doing, and we should get into talking about that whole situation. But yeah, but I don't think that uh, that is a sound way to defend the spiritual presence view. I think that if you're going to... Uh, if you're going to trample on the memory of Christ's sacrifice, then Christ has every right to judge you for doing that in an inappropriate manner. Whether, like, regardless of whether or not there's some mystical presence there or not. I just thought of a good rebuttal, too. Well, I mean, you think about you're probably about to say it. Ananias and Sapphira? Exactly. So are we going to say, well, he's uniquely present when we give tithes and offerings? And if we do it in an unworthy manner or, or an un, a dishonest manner, like, 
he's because he's uniquely present with that or are we going to say too like the, the this Jezebel lady in in uh, the church of what was it in the seven churches seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation two and three I can't remember which church but they were falling after this woman who John called Jezebel or Christ called Jezebel in the letters and and they were they were literally like being judged and getting sick and dying I'm pretty sure I want to pull that up I want to make sure I'm, I'm right on that I don't want to misquote that. <laughs> Yeah, I, worst words well, of every Bible teach. I'm pretty sure. I'm well, pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. While, while you're looking, you know, I, I think, I, I think it's important just to look at what did Jesus say when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and well, of course, and then, yeah. You know what does what does Paul tell us about what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that, you know. You know, bottom line here, it, it's it's very simple, and I think people just tend to make it far more complicated than it is. This is a meal that Jesus had, and with his disciples, and it was the last meal that they had together before Jesus died, and even further, it was the last meal that they had together. Period. Jesus hasn't eaten a meal since. This, that was it. And mm. at this meal, Jesus instituted the new covenant. Yeah. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Right. So I found my reference, Revelation 2, the church of uh, Thyatira. Is that how you say that? I think it's Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira. That sounds better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. So again, we see that similar type of judgment, um, making God making people sick and killing them when they do things in unworthy manners. So it's not necessarily just the Lord's Supper that's, you know, where God will do this in judgment of, of, of people who call themselves Christians. It's giving dishonestly, it's sexual immorality and adultery and things like that, eating food, food sacrificed to idols. So, yes... That's again. That's my pitch for just a pure memorial view. So those are the positions yeah. historically. That is kind of where the yep. Those are the four. Fits, you know. Yep. Uh, as we look at the practice of the Lord's Supper today. Yeah. Well, can, we, we how, sure. how often should <laughs> uh, we should we still need to define what exactly it is? It? is yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, can how we, often it should be done? Yeah. And and a whole host and of other issues. How do we issues. do it? Can can we read the um, read it? Yeah, yeah. Can can we read it? So like, um, I think I think it'd be good to read at least one of the synoptics where Jesus yeah. instituted it, and then and I, then I have First Corinthians, Corinthians 11, 11 open. Yeah. So, um, so First Corinthians eleven, starting in verse twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
sorry, um, sorry, hold on. Uh, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So um, so that's, that's where Paul um, mentioned, you know, teaches on what he received from Jesus about the night in which the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And, you know, some of the key things um, there are that the, uh, is that Jesus took the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. Right. Very much memorial-esque type language. Yep. And then... And then Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes. Right. Yes. So the Lord's Supper, it looks back and it looks forward. Yeah. It's triperspectival. It looks back at his death, his broken body, his shed blood on the cross. It looks presently, horizontally around you. Who are the other people who are communion, communing with me, who believe and confess the same gospel that I do, who I'm united with in Christ, we're partaking of, in a sense, the same body, meaning we believe in the same Christ, we believe in the same gospel, the same death and broken body saves us. So that's the horizontal aspect. You look around and you know, who have I covenanted with? You want to know who you've covenanted with? You look around at the Lord's Supper and see who's eating of the same bread and drinking of the same cup with you. And then you look futurely forward in time to when Christ returns and consummates the kingdom and and consummates the marriage with his people, and you have this amazing wedding feast. So you will is drink it, from the vine. So is it more looking again. back, more looking forward? Or more looking horizontally, or is that just a terrible question to ask? I think it's a terrible question. I think it's, and maybe people, but this is a good question though, because people do, you tend to see this in 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 when, when people take the Lord's Supper, there's this disposition of, a lot of people have this disposition of like, like soberness, somber, lowly, sad, contemplative, uh, serious. And, and it's maybe because they're focusing too much on the past mm-hmm. and not enough on this wedding feast that's going to come. And so... Well, and it doesn't well, help. But it doesn't s- help that we hand out little tiny individual <laughs> cups of juice and this tiny little square of bread. <sighs> and we and, and in so doing, it's just this, this individual process. There, there's no sense of celebration in it at all. No, it's, and and we have even taught us, like especially in in fundamental Baptist circles, we have taught people about the whole. The, like, I mean, the next verse in First Corinthians eleven is, you know, which you quoted earlier, Pastor Cody is, you know, for if you take it in an unworthy manner, yeah, uh, right, it, it, that that whole thing, then then you 
Um, I turned away from it now, but you eat and drink judgment on your head. Yeah, you you yep. eat and drink judgment on your head, and so that that verse has been used to teach that. Well, if you don't if you don't focus on your own sin and then confess and repent that to the Lord during this meal, then uh, then you're going to drink judgment on on yourself. So then you better use this as a time of reflection, and and then be very. Uh, somber and sober about what you're about to do, because otherwise the Lord's going to judge you. That is not the way that the early church practiced it. The 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 apostolic age church practiced it. Okay, so I appreciate your point where you're trying to say that this is a celebration, right? And it is. It should be a time of actually being uh, reassured of the love of Christ. Yeah. But there also is this element of examining yourself, right? Yes. And so I guess how do you uh, stay balanced, and how do you make sure that you are taking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, and what exactly is going on there anyways? I mean, how do you guys see that text? Well, it's debated. There's some of the best New Testament scholars, even commentators on 1 Corinthians, debate on what Paul means by unworthy. Some do go the more individual sin route. You having personal unconfessed sin that you're harboring in your heart, uh, that is that is partaking in an unworthy manner. Well, yeah, but that's not what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11 at all. Right, so then the other side is saying, no, let's look. Let's have it be more contextual and look at the more the immediate context of 1 Corinthians and what's going on. And as Paul says, um, for in the first place, when you come together as the church, so here's the, this is the gathering, again, come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that there those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you not, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you, commend you in this? No, I will not. So, it's this. He there's this camp then that says no. What's going on is, is as was so common in the Corinthian church, there was this two-tier type of Christianity going on, and there was the poor, and, and then there was the more affluent uh, class within the church, and the more affluent people, they, they were eating first, and they, were, and they were excluding the more lowly and poor citizens um, of Corinth who were obviously Christians, so they were excluding them from, from the supper. And and that is partaking in an unworthy manner because that does not display the gospel. The gospel we, is uh, a message that says whether Jew or Greek, Gentile, um, um, you know, well, I screwed that up. But <laughs> Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, man or woman, you know, whatever. Like all are one in Christ. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what class of society you're from, poor or rich. Obviously, we see this in the church and or that James is writing to in his epistle, this, these factions and divisions, uh, that, because the supper displays the gospel, and the gospel is is saying we are all one in Christ, of one body, one bread, one cup. When you do this and you create factions and you don't eat together and you, and you divide each other in this, that is taking it on an unworthy manner. Yeah, and well, and, and really... Like consider for a moment what Paul is saying. Like Paul is telling them that, like, like Paul Paul accuses them of getting drunk. He's saying you're getting drunk. So like, 
Think about how much wine they were consuming in order to get drunk. So they, they the, so much. These, these, these rich people were eating all of the food that was there, and they were consuming all of the wine to the point where the poor people who came later didn't have any food or wine to consume. Now think about, like, compare that to how we practice the Lord's Supper in Christian churches in America today. It's not even close to how the Corinthian church was practicing it. Now, I'm not saying that they were practicing it correctly, because obviously they had problems. They shouldn't have been doing what Paul was telling them to do. But the, the entire form is completely different. They had so much food and wine at this feast that people could get drunk, and we hand out little tiny plastic cups that that aren't even enough to take a drink out of, and one little tiny square of bread per person. Right. Yes, I agree with you. It is not—what uh, we do today is not what we see going on. Right. But is it still faithful enough to be considered the Lord's Supper, where Paul here rebukes the church to such an extent that he says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you take. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not the Lord's Supper that they that they took because the church wasn't gathered. There was, yeah. So that's, that's where you go when you are in one. So obviously you've and it was a, disorderly. A big critique, like, yeah, we we have these individual little wafers and 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 cups, little you know plastic cups or whatever with grape juice in it, whatever, and we all kind of just individually get our cup. But at the same time, we're all still in the same place at the same time. So it still counts. We're, we're all still, still the Lord's taking Supper, of it in the sense of the same Even if it's time. a wafer and a little cup, you're right. saying it still counts. I think it still counts. It's just not, it's not as, um, again, we could even go back to the baptism thing. Okay, yeah, we're going to have a, we're going to have a big issue, a major issue off of the meaning. And when you do what the Corinthians were doing and you were creating factions and you were dividing each other, that that fundamentally distorts the meaning. Right. But like baptism, well, we can we can have some we can have some grace with the mode. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 somebody is has health issues and they can't literally be immersed, well, we we can be gracious there and we can be flexible. So maybe that's what we could we could put that in that same camp with the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. The mode is maybe not Totally what we would want to see based upon the New Testament, but even with wafers and plastic cups, the meaning is still there, and we're still gathered together, and we're not dividing people out of it, and so that's where I would land on it. Now, I would prefer, uh, you know, I would prefer any church to try to be as close to the biblical pattern as they could be, uh, and... And there, there is a there is a discussion of pragmatics. I hate I know we hate that word, and obviously, people get overly pragmatic a lot, and a lot of churches do, especially in America. But it's still something that is a legitimate thing you have to consider, and and we have to remember that, like, you know, there's Sunday football that we just have to watch, <laughs> and we can't we can't spend all this time eating together. I mean, <laughs> we got to go watch the Vikings. But uh, well, I like Jude. In Jude, um, the Lord's Supper is referred to as as the love feast. 
That's right. <clears throat> it, that's right. So it was the fulfillment of the Passover, but then it, it, om- it, in a sense, turned into and became a type of love feast. Right. Yeah. Well, we see that uh, in Acts 2, right? I mean, we, we started at baptism, and that's where this all starts, right? right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, before you take communion— and this is historically even where churches have agreed. Right. Right. Baptism has always been a sign of entrance into the church. And you don't take communion unless you've been baptized. Right. Even if you're in a church that believes in infant baptism, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously they follow that up with, uh, you know, things like catechism and whatnot. But, right, there's still the understanding baptism is the initiatory sign of the Christian life. It's, it's a sign of entrance into the covenant community of God. And you don't take the Lord's Supper unless you have had that sign performed on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, right, if we haven't pointed it out yet, we'll point it out now, that the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign of our communion with God. And like you said, in the Corinthian church, they completely undermined the meaning of communion because... In communion, we recognize how the many are one, and we're one in Christ. And like you said, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, if you believed in Jesus, you are one in Christ. Mm. And I think this is just a good subtle distinction to make between baptism and communion. Yeah. And this is something that, I mean, I've been able to benefit from the ministry of Nine Marks from and the way right. that they describe this, right? But where you think about baptism is the one person identifying with the many. Yeah. In communion, you have the many identifying as one. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. And, you know, something that is, you know, really interesting to think about, too, with, like, Paul's rebuke in First Corinthians 11 is that people were being excluded from yeah. w- from worship um, by being excluded from, from the meal. Yeah. And the... Th- if you look through Jesus's ministry or earthly ministry, the times that Jesus was the most upset revolved around the exclusion of people from worship mm. or the exclusion of people from uh, from from being able to meet with him. So, like when when the disciples tried to keep the children away from coming to Jesus, yeah. Jesus was very upset about that. And then when uh, the 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 whole uh, thing with cleansing the temple, it. Um, Part of the thing that Jesus was really upset about was how uh, the the poor and the lame were being excluded from worship by the practices that were happening at the temple. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, I think this is an interesting and good dis- like distinction or added element to make out of First Corinthians eleven, because we have maybe gone too far, or some have gone too far to think that well, this this should be like a full meal, like a a, a feast, so to speak. And that's probably not what we're getting from this either, because at the very end, Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So obviously he's, de- he's reemphasizing this fact that you were, there was division and you, some were eating before others even got there. So wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, listen to this, let him eat at home mm-hmm. so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So... He's kind of getting, if you read it in between the lines... Don't come here on an empty stomach. Exactly. This yeah. isn't this isn't a, a, 
a, a church potluck. Like when the church does a potluck, it's I'm coming with an empty stomach because we're going to feast. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's it's something different than that. Mm-hmm. It is uh, you are eating together, but it's not to satiate yourself. It's not to get full. It's not to be your primary source of of nourishment for that day. Uh, so that's I think helpful because sometimes we look at the wafer and these little chunk of bread and the little teeny tiny plastic cup with grape juice in it. Well, at least it's going to guarantee that people don't show up uh, yeah. without eating first. <laughs> so maybe it's, an, maybe it's, it's a this, better practice. It's this whole ditch thing. But we look at that and we go, oh, you know, what the heck? Like, not enough food. This was a feast or this was a meal. It's like, well, if we n- served a full, full meal, we would be tempting people. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Cool. I mean, I, I think that Paul's point here is that uh, if you can't control yourself to eat eat so much that you can't leave anything for the poor people, then eat at home before you get there. <laughs> because uh, because I, I think I think the the practice of the early church was to eat together every time they met, mm-hmm. and. And well, in so doing, it was the practice of the early church to eat of the supper every time they gathered. You know, they gathered daily. What's you know, Acts two says, and they they devoted know, themselves and, to the apostles' teaching, yep, to the prayers, the breaking to, of bread, and the fellowship. Yeah. So it was a it was something they did every time they gathered. It seemed like they, that's what it was going on, and and so. I, I think it was their practice to partake of the Lord's Supper, yeah, every well, time, but not necessarily no, eat a meal. No, they no they had meals, and then and then there came a point in history where the where the Lord's Supper, the the two elements, became separated from those meals. Ah, I remember that from that article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, you still didn't answer my question. What though. was your question? So, I mean, yes, it's a celebration. Yeah. But where does the, I guess, examining yourself fit in? Fit in with this, and what exactly is going on then? If the sin is what's the ver- the sin of division ultimately, right? It's is, is that the only thing that's in view? Like this is only speaking to our lack of love for others and wedging in divisions within the right. Lord's church, or can you, or should it be widened out to right. say? You know, represent other sins as well. I think I think you can make a case for it to be widened, but not from First Corinthians eleven. And I think where you can widen it. What's the text that says if you ha- if you have something against your brother, go to him. Matthew you, eighteen. Yeah, the church discipline text. Before you go offer something on the altar, like and obviously we could equate that with gathering together and worshiping Christ and partaking of the Lord's Supper. Like, go reconcile yourself to him before you go. Okay, okay. And that still kind of touches on this horizontal deal, right? This horizontal relationship deal. But at the end of the day, almost all sin... But what about the guy who's looking at pornography in yeah, right, his, right, in right, his right, bedroom? Right, like, right. But he's, he's but he's got great relationships with other people in the church. Well, he's sinning like, against his. He's sinning against someone. He's so should he come God. and take the Lord's supper, or should he examine himself and then go, "I'm not taking this week." And this is what I. This is where I would argue that. This is tricky. The guy mentioned it in this book. Um, one of the positions where, like, I think even 
Gordon Fee might be one of the ones that takes the position that it's 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 any type of sin. I think where you draw the distinction is I would say yes, if it's unrepentant. Mm-hmm. So if he is if a guy is struggling with pornography and it's it's habitual and it's a practice that he's doing and he's not repenting of it and he's not confessing it to his brothers then yeah he's not he's actually on the on the should be on the track of church discipline which means that he's he's on the way if he doesn't repent to actually getting excommunicated and being barred from the lord's supper mm-hmm. so obviously then that would make it seem like you sh- you shouldn't be taking of this cuz you're you're communicating by your actions that you're you're not a Christian anymore. Mm-hmm. But the Christian who struggles with sin, as all Christians do, whether it's it's just, you know, whatever it might be, pride or greed or 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 anger or, you know, maybe drunkenness. I don't know, something. He's struggling with something, substance abuse, but he has a repentant heart and he's continuing to repent and and seek forgiveness and and live a repentant life, well then yeah, you're you're a Christian. So what would you tell the person? Here I am the pastor speaking in this bunch, <laughs> right? I'm coming up with all these practical things because yeah, yeah. I've encountered them, right? Right. That's what okay, pastors so, do. They everything under the sun they have to deal with. So I mean, there was this elder in our church in Michigan. His name was Rick. Fantastic guy. Love Rick. And he was always the heart level guy. How are yeah. you doing? Yeah. You know, and always said with one hundred percent sincerity and always you know, you could pour your heart out to him. But, I mean, there were many times where Rick would not participate in communion. And it wasn't because he was living some double life and had this hidden sin, but, like, he he, he just took communion so much to heart that he really, if his, cons- if his conscience was feeling um, kind of burdened because of just not honoring the Lord as much as he felt he could that week, right, then he just wouldn't, partic- you know, participate like, what would you say to that person? I'd say that. I mean, I'd say that I, I've thought to, about that from time to time. I'd like, say that he's spe- like, to, especially in the last year uh, as of being an elder. Like, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've had that thought going into Communion Sunday. Sometimes been like, man, you know, like, did I really, like, th- did I live this this last month or like this last week in in a way that really honors the Lord? as well as I should have as an elder. And maybe maybe I shouldn't take the supper. This, uh, now this I have week. to ask, is that new a... since being an elder? Or, <laughs> well, or is this something that in the past, too, when you've taken communion, you've thought, uh, this week didn't go so well, I don't think I'm going to take the Lord's I Supper. Mean, I mean, I suppose maybe I, I, I had that thought a couple of times before. But I, I think I think like since becoming an elder, I, I think I take things a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think there's there's a reality of like there's a there's a higher bar of responsibility, and um, you know, like a like just just a higher bar of like expectation, right? That the that the Bible sets, and so I think I I think I just I just think about that more often, mm-hmm. and so you know, like I I think about that and yeah i mean so so there's been been some times we've come up on communion sunday i'm like okay did you know did did i did i handle myself and and there, there's been a couple of times when i've gone into like saturday night going yeah man maybe maybe i shouldn't take communion this week mm-hmm. but then you know like 
you pray about it and Sunday morning comes and like, well, the sin in my life is showing progress Mm -hmm. in sanctification and the Lord is gracious um, and the Lord is faithful and and I still like, like I still acknowledge my sin and I'm and I still feel very regretful of it and I want to see improvement in it mm-hmm. knowing that then I will I will take the cup and the bread I, I think that's really helpful uh, and I'm glad you pointed that out I have Be- thoughts <laughs> <laughs> you know like and the reason I ask this is because I don't want people showing up and then all of a sudden stopping from the participation of the Lord's Supper because they can think of ways they've sinned throughout the week. Well, see, that's what bothers it's, me so much. It's like, much. does does that not honestly defeat what the Lord's Supper is? It is right. to be a reminder that your sins have been paid yes, for. Yes, that's the point I'm the getting The Lord at. has atoned for them. There is freedom in Christ. You have fellowship with God. You've been reconciled to Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and and one day he's coming back. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and I just I I was reminded of this even in the last year. I re, I had a conversation with somebody in our life group, and they said, "Yeah, I just I haven't taken the Lord's Supper, and I forget what they said, like a month." And and I I said to him, "What's going on? Are you okay? Like, are you? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. are you trapped? Yeah." in a certain sin and, right. and, and <laughs> their lie, their eyes light up and like, no, you know, it's like, well, okay. So you're repenting of sin and you're imperfectly following Jesus. Yep. Okay. Then take the Lord's supper. Well, yeah. I mean, truly you're, you're the same as every other Christian. You're in the world. very normal. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the whole point. It's like, if you have to, again, it's this, you're judging yourself. You're, you're, judge yourself to this arbitrary like well what well, we sin we sin every day in some way and obviously we believe we're being sanctified and that that we're progressing and that we, we're not as sinful as we once were but we're still sinful mm-hmm. and to ever think that we have to meet this arbitrary standard of well i i didn't sin that much this week so now i can take the lord's supper yeah like that is just weird and kind of awfully legalistic it's weird to me i don't like it mm-hmm. honestly I have a problem with it. Like, when you are n- not supposed to take the Lord's Supper is when you are no longer obviously a Christian. Mm-hmm. A Christian is one who wrestles with the flesh and is seeking to put it to death, and I like the analogy of the one who is, before you were a Christian, you were just going with the flow of the stream, and when you became a Christian, you turned around and you started to buck the water. And so there is this tension, there is this pressure, there is this fight that you're constantly feeling. You're fighting the flesh. And if if... Like, that is that is a mark of a truly saved Christian. So if you feel like, well, because I'm fighting the flesh, I can't take of the Lord's Supper, well, that's just bizarre to me. No, that's like, take of the Lord's Supper and remind yourself that Christ has paid for the sin that you're wrestling with right now, mm-hmm. and you don't have to merit salvation by your good works. And so it's this worshipful, amazing picture of the gospel. So if you're the pastor then, and you're yeah. leading... Uh, the Lord's Supper. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you prevent people from entering that place? You know, how do you fence the table? How do you encourage self-examination in a balanced way? Yeah. Yeah. What do you What do you tell people? 
I mean, I, I can tell you, I've probably gone between two extremes, you know, because this is just we what, all do. It, it is, it, it is, is a little is yeah. mature in Christ, right? But I mean, for the longest time, I was very much of the mindset that, you know, this had to do with a habitual sin that was not being yeah repented of yeah uh, per se, and and then I went to the side of well, the immediate context is the sin going on in the Corinthian church is that these people are being divisive. Yeah. They are not living in uh, relationships of harmony and love and peace. And so then I went to the you know side of, well, what are your relationships like? Yeah. And so I kind of emphasized that more in my presentation. And now I've kind of like come back towards the middle where I'm like, no, nah, I think, like you said, on the basis of other passages, the Lord calls us to live a holy lifestyle. Yeah. And we are to be repenting of all sin. And I kind of think of it now, both sides. And I try to fence with both of those things in view where yeah, it's like, are you aware of sin in your life that you're not repenting of? Then we would encourage you not to take of the Lord's supper. If you are living in divisive relationships, if you are not loving someone, and in particular, there is a, an irreconciled relationship. Mm-hmm. then perhaps today is not the day for you. Go be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And even then you have to be careful because it's like, if you start talking about broken relationships, well, guess what? Every one of us has them. Absolutely. And it's guaranteed that that's going to happen through following Christ, Yeah. right? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah. And Jesus goes on to describe that every family relationship is going to be affected. Yes. So you're going to be hated for your faith in yes. Jesus. So you can't even like just emphasize that if you have divided relationships, right? That right. there's a context within in- Christian relationships, how your relationships are with brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of the same local church. The same local church is yeah. the big emphasis there. I mean, in, in so much as it depends on you, live peaceably among all men. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and sometimes you've done everything, and there is no reconciliation possible. And I think that's it's helpful for us to realize, like, because we're so limited and we're finite and we have only so much time and so much bandwidth and so much resources, like, that's the beauty of the local church. It gives us a real tangible, uh, it gives us real tangible people of, like, how do we, who do, who's the, the subject or, or object, I guess you should say, of the one another commands? Like, it's your local congregation. Mm-hmm. And, and if you if you broaden it too far and make it too universal, in a sense, then you're going to be overwhelmed. You're never going to be able to live in, with, in peace with everybody and even every Christian necessarily. Don't forget that Paul and Barnabas, they separated. They could not get along anymore, and they could not do ministry anymore together, and they had to separate. They had to go their own ways. That's great. That's Paul. And Barnabas. Thankfully, there is a happy ever after to that story. Yes, there is. <laughs> but the point is, is like, I trust yeah. that those two men were wise enough and filled with the Spirit enough to realize, like, sometimes in this broken world, we just have to separate, and we just can't be along, around each other anymore. And this is fine, and this is good, and God uses both of our trajectories. He did use both of their tra- your new trajectories to, to build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's just re- this reality of like you have a broken relation. This happens a lot actually, and as you as a pastor will probably know this, like you'll have a, a broken relationship in a church congregation where the only way to really fix it is that one of the members actually has to leave. 
and and go to a different church for the sake of both of them and their walks with Christ. And there gets to be this this reality that just one of them showing up to church is just they just can't do it anymore because they see this under other individual and it just there's just no way around um, some hard feelings that maybe something that happened and and you might just have to go to different local churches <laughs> and that can be tough though um, but I don't ever see in the, in this this idea though that like like yeah that you should because you're con- conscious of your the fact that you're a sinner and you're wrestling with the flesh that therefore means I shouldn't take of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Like, no, partake and be reminded of the grace of God in it and that he broke his body and shed his blood for you that you might have the forgiveness of sins and let that be a healing and sanctifying and a worshipful experience where you can just revel in the gospel. Mm. But, Yeah. So closed or open communion? I mean, we kind of mentioned that right away. I'm like, man, I see both arguments. I mean, for just for the listener, like the closed communion view is that in a local church, only those who have been baptized and are members, covenant members of that particular local church can, can partake in the Lord's Supper at that local church. So you just came up here from... Emmaus Church. <laughs> Yep, well, yeah. I'm a covenant member now of. So you come up here, and if we were, which we're not. Like hard if, closed. If we were hard closed. I couldn't take the Lord's Supper with you guys. And that just seems bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Because one, I was a covenant member with you guys not that long ago. I mean, we have such rich fellowship together. And when I come up here, I'm like, am I, you know, we travel. People travel for seasons of, of life, and you're to say that, well, because I covenanted with Emmaus in North Kansas City that when I travel away from North Kansas City that I shouldn't gather with Christians and, and other How places. would you ever plant another church? Well, it's it's just so impractical and weird. Like, like Christians up in North Dakota and Fargo who have the same spirit as I have, who have been saved by the same Savior as I have, like, versus those down in Kansas or Missouri, like— that's the picture of the universal church. Like, we're saved by the same gospel and the same Savior, and we have the same spirit. So when I, wherever I'm at, I want to be able to say that and, and display that through partaking of the Lord's Supper with, with other Christians. And close communion allows for that. It, it allows for you to come up from Missouri and still participate in the Lord's Supper, but it still does emphasize the importance of, of good standing within a local oh, church. Oh, a local church, yeah. yeah. And that would be, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming that closed community has a bit of a spectrum then. Because mm-hmm. I'm assuming that there is like a very hard side of closed community where it's like only the covenant members of this local church can partake. And then there's more of the softer side or immediate, immediate position where it's like, you just have to be in a good standing and a member of a local church. Well, aren't there no, two? I think, I, think, I think close position does speak to the broadness of aren't, aren't there two terms acceptance. aren't yeah. there two well, terms closed communion refers to what you just ex- explained yeah. first right and then there's close, close. oh close close communion Wait, is what i'm referring it. to what are you saying c l o s e as opposed to c l o s e d oh yeah i see i didn't know you were 
Yeah, so I was making there. yeah, no, I was making a <laughs> distinction. So yes, close I, communion. I'm in, I'm a close communion guy. Yeah. So and when I was in Michigan, First Baptist Church of Farmington, we ended up moving from open communion to close communion. Yeah, C-L-O-S-E. because we really close, became, as in I'm going to stand close to you. Yes, not okay. closed, not close. as in I'm not closing closed. the door. Duh. Oh boy. <laughs> and we moved to close position. Those um, two words. Close. They need communion. to change one of those words. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but because we really saw this uh, place in Scripture where God's people should be members of a local church. In yes. good standing. Yes. And baptized covenant members. Right. And open communion is the position that, hey, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, go ahead and partake with us. Yeah. Right. And that's it. And, you know, you still fence the table. Yeah. You, you still encourage people to. Like Christians. <laughs> you know, you still encourage people to be evaluating their lives yeah. and, you know, warning them of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But. Um, we are currently at Harvest Plains Open Communion. Oh, really? Yeah, for the record. Wow. But I can I, I completely understand mm-hmm. the close communion position, and frankly, probably fall more on that side of things. Yeah. I just felt like, and this probably gets back to maybe just as you think through planting a church. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure since, uh, you know, close communion is something that would be pretty new and in this area in this area i wanted to make sure that as we established uh, the leadership of the church that this is a move that we made in harmony with the members and with the leadership yeah so i guess that was just more of a practical decision that i made yeah but i still think it's worth mentioning in the fencing of the table like hey we 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 would love for you to be a member of a local church in good standing right yeah and that's something that you would say frequently if you were in the close communion position. Right. Yeah. So. It, it also comes down to a matter of, like, how do you practically enforce it? Because you can you can be a church that has a close communion position, and you can talk about it. You can say that that's your position. You can talk a lot about it, but then in practice— you're actually open communion because you don't have a good way to enforce it. Right. How would you enforce it? I mean, it? what are you going to do? And like how it, would you enforce it in the way where you're almost not doing what 1 Corinthians 11 was doing? Where right. you're creating like, these distinctions and these Like divisions. if you see, <laughs> if, if, if you see, for example, uh, a parent with their, with their six-year-old who hasn't been baptized in your church yet ta- with, with a piece of bread in their hand and they're about to eat it, what are you going to do? Have an elder walk up to them and slap the bread out <laughs> of their hand? <laughs> Like, I mean, that, that that's a legitimate question. Like, right. how are you going to enforce that? Um, or are you going to put the parents through church discipline for allowing their six-year-old to take communion? Right. I mean, the, these are these are legitimate practical questions. If that's the position that, that you hold, uh, you have to then say, okay, are we actually going to enforce it? What does that look like? Or are we not going to enforce it and then actually just say that we're close communion and then in practice be open. Right. Well, here's the thing is, I, I think that given the prevalence of open communion today, it is revealing of the extreme end that the Church has ended up arriving at. Yeah. And the fact is that close communion was the, the popular expression of communion. It was. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
Historically speaking, oh, yeah. that was yeah. the more popular position. Yeah. But we're not there. And no. how did we get there? You think you bring up all sorts of examples, but you could especially think about the ecumenical movement and the yes. kind of impact that has had. Oh man. Where it's like, hey, we we've emphasized the, you know, larger universal church over the local expression of the church. Yep. And we are definitely in a day and age in which every person is authority unto themselves, right? right? There's no place for church membership. There is no local church authority. There's no leadership that you need to be submitted to. You know, it's right. and so yeah. it's it's a it's a very independent type of Christianity that yep. people have fallen into. Overly yeah. inclusive. Well, and, and I'll tell you another culprit of how we got there is we've started bat- we started baptizing infants, <laughs> and then and then when they turned like seven or eight, we said, "Oh, well, you can have your first communion," and nobody bothered to ask them if they were actually Christians. <laughs> Yeah, it was a big deal. I remember even growing up Lutheran, like, your first communion was this big thing, and it was this thing that was on the calendar, and it's like, what a weird idea to think about that now, you know, well, from, and from this I, perspective of, like— I'm just thinking out loud, but that still would be, to me, you know, they even though they baptized infants, they yeah. still would fall into a close communion category, because right. it's like, but, you know, you go to a Catholic church, but you, and if you're not Catholic— Oh, yeah. You right, but what? This. You gotta you gotta cross your arms, and they give you the blessing, but they don't give you the elements. No. Right? Right. Yeah, but yeah. but here, here's my point, is that because nobody bothered to ask them if they were actually Christians before they took— communion. Well, they wouldn't then bother they, because in their they theology, started, they are a Christian. But They've been baptized. Then they started <laughs> taking communion from the time that they were little kids, and then they just grew up taking it, and they just took it as adults, and uh, nobody ever bothered to ask them or challenge them if they were actually regenerate believers. Yeah. And so now we have a culture that is full of non-believers taking communion, and nobody bothers to ask and them. It, it's uh, you'll see this in the older generations. They'll they'll visit a new church, or you know your grandparents, let's say that grew up in some traditional type church, whether it be Lutheran or whatever, and 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 then they go to your your new you know more hip, you know pop evangelical church, their grandchildren's church, and it's just like. Yeah, because it's just tradition. You just take communion. Yeah, they just take communion, and they might not even be truly regenerate. It's just right. Christianity for these old folks. It's yeah. just and if you want to talk tradition. about you know taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, being a non-believer and taking communion, that is well, in an unworthy manner. I, I wouldn't even say that. I wouldn't say that that is a, like a non-Christian doing any of those things is nothing. They're unregenerate and they're unsaved. Them going underwater is just getting wet. Them taking eating bread and drinking wine is just them eating bread and taking wine. Like they're not of the body. Yeah, I suppose you're right. It's just like what what more can happen to them? They're going to hell right now as they sit. Like what more is eating some bread and yeah, drinking and, some and wine? Paul writes that to the church, not to right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. You're just getting heated. I am. I am. Okay, we've talked too long. We've I think we've done a good job. For the most part, we didn't even talk about the frequency, though. Yeah, we didn't talk about frequency, (laughs) and we didn't really even talk about historical communion that much. I well, we're at an hour and twenty minutes. Well, we gotta let these people off the hook. All right, so let's wrap this up quickly. All right, frequency of the Lord's Supper. Here's where I'm at weekly. I think I think I remember when we were talking about how we see and view and 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 gaze upon Christ, and I went to Luke 24, and he clearly connected to the scriptures, and then the breaking of the bread. And and I go, hmm, 
I think there's something really significant about weekly, not only hearing the gospel through the scriptures, but seeing the gospel. In the I'm going to accuse you of reading the Lord's Supper into a passage that I don't think it's present in. It's post-resurrection. I agree. And it says, and he broke the bread. Yeah. It also says the same thing in John 6. There's a lot of similar language oh between John 6 and 1 Corinthians 11, with John 6, where he took, he the, prayed, he blessed. You see a lot of the same words mentioned. the problem mentioned. is, is John 6 was pre, yeah. pre the institution of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, I, reject, John, I reject your argument In Luke 24, in, in Luke 24 after, the, after the road to Emmaus, it's not until he breaks the bread that those two disciples recognize him. Well, that's what I'm saying. And, and what's interesting about that is neither of those two disciples were at the Lord's Supper, and which means that they heard about the Lord's Supper from the 11 who were there. That's what's fascinating, and they still recognized him. Um, well, it was a it was with, a supernatural thing. He yeah. purposely made himself recognizable yeah. when he broke the bread. Yeah, and now why? That's the question. Right. Why at I don't that? Know, I'm moment? just saying. No, I'm I'm with Sam on this one. It's not it's not the top dog of my arguments. It's the bottom dog. Well, that's good. So <laughs> my but, my top yeah. dog is Acts two. And they gathered daily, and they gave themselves, yep. devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the prayers, the fellowship, and the breaking of the bread. Yeah, and that's was, my top dog argument. Yeah, and yeah. it was it was the practice of the church in the apostolic age to have the their love feasts at at each of their gatherings. Yeah. Another argument you'll hear this as a as an argument for oh maybe we should only do it once a month. They'll say because. When we do it once a month, it's more significant, and we anticipate it. Oh, more. I hate that argument. And and what's wrong with that argument is like if we think this is an element of a, a a prescribed element of worship, then you should be able to make that argument for every other element. Well, no. well, we shouldn't. We don't preach every week. <laughs> we should, yeah. That's because right. let's it, preach less. Yeah, once a month preaching, yeah. so we appreciate every word that <laughs> comes out of the pastor's oh. mouth, right? I mean, before if you make that argument on any given thing you do on a Sunday, Singing, before you know it, you don't you don't do anything. You don't do anything. So I I am you know right now we take on the first Sunday of the month, and I admit I don't like our practice. Okay, <laughs> I admit, and uh, you know that's one thing that excites me about having a place that we meet. Uh, that's our own space because yeah, I think it's that it's to do that. it is, and so um, you know we're going to move towards a regular celebration, a more regular celebration of the Lord's Supper, yeah. and um, you know, uh, recently Adam and I had an experience. Yep, we do have experiences. Uh, we went down to Florida, Naples, yep. uh, to Justin Harris's church, Faith Bible Church of Naples, and uh, and there we saw something rather interesting where they had. Uh, communion celebrated two different ways throughout the month. Mm. So they did it... Well, they, they do every other month. Or they alternated months. So yep. they did communion once a month, and uh, one month they would do what they called the traditional celebration, which is funny, because when we think about traditional, we think about history. Yeah. Well, well traditional in their minds is just what they've been accustomed to doing as a church, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. where you get, like, the you way, know, the little cup and, yeah. little you know, a little piece of bread. But then... The other the, the the next month, then they would actually do the historical uh, representation yeah. of the Lord's Supper, and we were down there uh, for a training. Our elders were, and uh, we got to experience the historical 
uh, celebration. And so they came together on a Sunday evening, and you went through a line, and you picked up a Jimmy John's box, and you went, you sat down in the sanctuary, and you were in the midst of this meal, and then they got up, and, you know, it, it was kind of cool. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the, the way that they did it was they, so they had everybody get a, their Jimmy John's box. Yeah. Um, but they told they told everybody not to start eating until everybody had been served. Yep. And then sat down, and then uh, and then Pastor Harris um, got up and he he initiated the meal. Um, he and they started by actually handing out pieces of bread, like um, mm-hmm. they were a little bit uh, bigger. I think they were like uh, gluten free wafers, or, but or no, it was. Um, Unleavened bread. So sure. they, they handed out pieces of unleavened bread to everybody. And once everybody who was going to partake, uh, so anybody who was there could actually eat of the meal itself, like the Jimmy John's meal. Yeah. But then um, they fenced the table for the actual Lord's Supper meal. Um, and then uh, so they whoever was um, was going to partake in that was was handed the uh, the unleavened bread. And then once everybody um, had that. Then he did, you know, uh, a reading from First Corinthians eleven yep. for the part of the bread, and then, uh, so then we partook of that, and then they let everybody start to eat their Jimmy John's meal, hmm. and then they encouraged um, at like during that meal to talk about like uh, have spiritual conversations with the people around you, and like talk about what the Lord has done for you recently or what was going on in your life spiritually, uh, and then uh, after after so much time had passed. Uh, then they passed around a microphone to give like, um, like thanks for uh, other people in the church. Like, what have other people in the church done? Like, if you wanted to say thank you for stuff like that, uh, there was uh, a little period of singing that that they did, and then at the end is when Pastor Harris got back up, and then they passed out the uh, the juice to all of the people who were partaking in the Lord's Supper. And then they, then he did another reading for First Corinthians eleven, and then a prayer, and then, and then dismissed. Hmm. That was amazing, hmm. by the way. Well, there you go, Sam. We had to touch on frequency. Yeah, good. That for the most part hits everything. There's probably more, but whatever. We're at an hour and a half, so thanks for bearing with us. I think it was engaging. I think it was interesting. <laughs> I think it was lively discussion. So hopefully, it was enjoyable to you who are listening. Once again, if you haven't yet left a rating on on whatever service you're using to listen to this, Apple Podcast, Spotify, whatever, if you would and you enjoy this podcast, leave a five-star rating that will help us to get discovered more. That would be great if you want to learn more about my ministry with Ambassadors for Christ International. You can visit our website, afci.us. The link will be in the show notes. Um, but once again, thanks for listening and have a great day. Bye.